don't discuss. Candid conversations about the things we're told we can't talk about in business. From what it feels like to be the only one in the room to finally getting a seat at the table, navigating business while Black and woman can be professionally challenging, but personally rewarding. Join us for insightful interviews that validate that what we often feel, sense, and experience is real. Armed with these success stories, we can be better equipped to shatter glass ceilings and break through cement walls with authenticity. I'm telling. I'm telling. I'm telling. I'm telling. I'm telling. I believe arriving at leadership is less an event and more of a, a journey. It has no endpoint. And if you somehow think you are there, that you've somehow arrived, you've likely missed the mark. On this episode of Things We Don't Discuss, we are honored to feature a Philadelphia-based leader whose leadership journey is as extensive as it is evergreen. She's who many in the tri-state region call on not only to represent her own organization, but to be a thought partner. Someone who can provide the kind of candor and perspective that elevates discussions for mere conversations. And here in Philly, believe me, we can talk. We talk a lot. But with her, you are able to elevate conversations to actionable, systemic, inclusive strategies. She's so well sought out and so accessible. I mean, if you call her, she makes time for you. Especially for those of us who care deeply about diversity, inclusion, and equity. That when you're afforded time on her calendar, you have to make every second count. So with that in mind, we went directly to her office and turned it into our studio. So you might hear a phone ring or someone stop by. There's always good work, important work, incessant work surrounding her. It was a gift to see her multitask, to see her juggle priorities, to see her cast her black girl magic all over everything she touched. It was an even greater gift to share space with this Philadelphia leader who's done it all and continues to find more to do. With every step, she learns, stretches, grows, evolves. And more importantly, she teaches and mentors and sponsors and supports established and emerging leaders alike. She's an advocate able to challenge and convene, a leader with a broad smile and a brilliant mind. She is the epitome of what it looks like to navigate business while black and woman with unequivocal resolve and authenticity. As always, we want to thank our sponsors, Little Drummer Boy Recordings, for all of your audio and podcasting needs, and Home Studio Tutor, teaching digital music creation and entrepreneurship to the world. Hi, my name is Charmaine Matlock-Turner. I'm the president and CEO of the Urban Affairs Coalition. We live in the Philadelphia area, but we do work in the region, and we are a not-for-profit uh, that believes in uh, doing good and doing well. So we are a home for nonprofits as well. We provide back office or fiscal sponsorship uh, to over 75 groups and organizations uh, in our region. And we also are a connector, a convener, a collaborator, uh, and we like to be on the cutting edge. We want to know, you know, how can we drive change, not only from what we've learned from the past, but really to make sure that we're always looking ahead and looking towards the future. 
So Charmaine Matlock-Turner, it is absolutely a pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Uva. It's a pleasure to be here with you as well. Wonderful. Um, Let's jump right into it. Let's air it out. Um, You are also uh, a black woman, someone who has this presence that I think is unequivocal. I've watched your career for quite some time, and I'm I'm just honored and pleased to have an opportunity to learn a little bit more about your your thoughts, your feelings, the things we really don't discuss in business, right, that some of us have had uh, access to. And so I'm excited about you, your willingness to provide that access to other black women, uh, but also other people, our allies, people who care about us, work with us, and could benefit from this information. So with all of that said, Charmaine, tell us about your upbringing. I have a feeling some of that will intersect with with the conversation we'll continue to have. Certainly. Uh, Well, I was born in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, and had a chance to spend probably most of my summers right outside of Charlottesville in a little area called North Garden uh, up until uh, my early teens when it was time for me to get a real summer job. Uh, But it was a wonderful place to spend time with my grandparents uh, and other relatives. Um, During the school year, I lived uh, first in Baltimore, Maryland, and then Philadelphia. Uh, Grew up initially in North Philadelphia, and we moved to West Philadelphia and uh, lived there for a number of years. And so now you've called Philadelphia home for quite some time. And in that time, you've also made a name for yourself uh, and have really lifted this organization and many of the other organizations and companies you've worked for uh, for some time. Can you talk about uh, double jeopardy, right? We know that... This idea of intersectionality for us black women, gender and race can become uh, an interesting combination and sometimes it cuts. Uh, Can you talk about how you have managed through this idea of double jeopardy, how you've experienced, if you've experienced it, um, the most important question I think is how have you dealt with it? Well, you know, I, I think that's a really important question because I know all of us, no matter what our identity is, there are always issues around how do we effectively connect and really ultimately make things happen and hopefully that people see our vision of the world in a way that they want to ultimately be a part of. I think what really helped me was that I really came along or or sort of grew up at a time when the idea that being active and being involved and being engaged was not something that was sort of like weird. It was something that was considered um, just a part of what you did. So, um, you know, when I was in high school, I was involved in the student newspaper and I ran for office and I was in student government. Uh, When I was in college, I was a part of protest movements and sort of leading uh, men and women to uh, focus on, you know, what it meant to get more students uh, uh, on our campus and more students admitted. Um, we actually uh, also had a time when uh, actually uh, I was an officer of the Black Student Union and I was the only woman who was an officer. And so all the men were arrested except for me. And so it was my job to sort of lead the charge um, while the men were jailed um, mm-hmm. and to keep uh, to keep the movement going. So I, for some reason or other, I, I, I know that part of it has been that I, you know, it's, it's not like I haven't been afraid or concerned or 
um, that, you know, maybe people wouldn't hear me, but there was always something sort of driving me to say, I got to be involved. I, 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 let me just try one more time. Let me just one more time. If it didn't work this time, let's let me try it one more time and one more time and one more time. And so I just always pushed ahead against whatever odds were out there. I remember one time, I think I was considerate that the sense that I had of feeling the loneliest or the most down that I've ever felt in my life. I was working on some particular project and I think I'd gotten turned down for it and I happened to be in West Philly and I stopped somewhere for some coffee and I remember I was like near Drexel's campus and I I felt as if I was like climbing up this hill. It's the weirdest kind of feeling and um, I felt like, oh man, this is like, you know, it's it's not going to work. My life has changed. Everything's going to be bad. But I just kept walking up that hill And eventually that day was over. I regrouped and said, okay, what do I need to do next? And so I got back up and tried it again. I think leadership is in your DNA, right? (laughs) You always have a way of of getting up and and trying again. It seems to be embedded in in, in who you are. Um, Talk to us about... So you are in the nonprofit sector. Uh, you've been in government before. You've been, uh, you, you've had, you, you've had a, a, a career. I think that that is really peppered with, seasoned with, uh, a lot of experiences that I think have, I'm sure, have led you to where you are and have served you well. One of the things that uh, we've been grappling with is this idea, well, really the the reality that there are no women uh, CEOs in Fortune 500 uh, companies. Uh, And the few men who have been there, um, it's too few of them as well. So as as a people, we still have some work that we need to continue to do. And much like you, there are many of us who are resilient, who are fighting, who are pushing. Uh, But there seems to be, there's clearly still this disconnect uh, and a challenge when it comes to women of color, black women specifically, ascending to executive roles in corporate. Yet in the nonprofit space, it looks significantly different. There's still room for growth there. We did a study of Philadelphia nonprofit organizations and took a look at just nonprofits in general. Um, If you look at nonprofits that have been organized and or developed in the African-American community, certainly you will see African-American leadership. But if you look across the nonprofit space, Mm -hmm. uh, we are still very, very low uh, in numbers. And that's on the nonprofit side. So if you look at college presidents, hospital presidents, as foundation presidents, as well as social service organizations, you'll still find uh, that there are not uh, enough women uh, in that space. So I think when you look at how we as a people of color uh, advance, and then how do we as black women move ahead, I think the alignment around those two things are are quite similar. Uh, Change is hard. Change, as much as I have done throughout my career, is not always fast. Um, One of the things that I think about, which um, I think is important, is the whole idea that you ultimately try to create enough of a combustion to try to open things up. Um, And so, yes, are there more opportunities? Yes. But what I found is that 
driving change, especially in leadership roles, is really about relationships. And, you know, a lot of times I, I went to see Michelle Obama uh, when she was promoting her book, which I thought was fantastic. And one of the things that she said that has really stuck with me was my high school counselor was trying to convince me that I wasn't good enough to go to Princeton, she said. She said, but when I got there, I realized that there were a bunch of mediocre people. And I was actually meeting with uh, an African-American leader this morning who said, one of the most important things my father ever taught me was that there were a lot of people who were millionaires who were just kind of like regular, everyday people. And so I think a lot of times we think that when people are in leadership, they must be extraordinary. And they probably are good. I don't want to diminish any of the accomplishments of people in leadership, but a lot of them are just like us, except they went to the same elementary school together. They went to the same high school together. They were a part of some of the same clubs. They went to the same colleges. Their parents knew each other. They're in a network of people who know them, who appreciate who they are, and agreed to promote them just as a matter of course. Because of racism, segregation, and marginalization, many of us haven't grown up in many of those spaces. And so that means that we're sort of coming in, people want to know, who are you? Can I trust you? What are you about? You know, it's a different kind of, you know, I think a different kind of way of ultimately working your way in when you're just not a part of the club. Absolutely, which takes us to social capital. And I think it touches on uh, the African-American Leadership Development Forum, which you and several other leaders were instrumental in, um, in starting here in Philadelphia. Can you talk to us a little bit about that program uh, as you envisioned it? Because so many great people have had an opportunity to go through it. Full disclosure, I had a chance to, touch, to be touched by that program as well. But so much of it uh, dealt with our lack sometimes of social capital. Uh, and you talked about and talked, taught us how to backfill those gaps. Right. And certainly social capital is absolutely critical to, um, number one, people just sort of seeing you and seeing your talent and being able to, for you to be able to talk to someone about what your vision and, and your dreams are. For me, um, I was able to do it um, because I spent a lot of time in my early career in politics. So I was in places and spaces and meeting people and talking to people that I probably would have never gotten an opportunity to do if I was someplace else that wasn't already sort of integrated because we were sort of marrying, you know, black power and power and trying to get into legislative offices that were certainly uh, more diverse. Um, I would say the same thing is true as we look at the Philadelphia African American Leadership Forum and the work of really trying to um, build the next great uh, nonprofit leaders, of which, of course, you know you're already one of them, uh, <laughs> is the idea that um, in building social capital, we have to find other ways to do that. One of the important other projects that's come out of that, which is a great way, which also helped me besides um, being a part of the political world, was the whole idea of ultimately getting on boards 
getting on boards was a huge opener for me to get not only into spaces and places where I normally wouldn't get through just the normal social um, part of my life, but to get to people who were in leadership roles. And again, we cannot underestimate the importance of diversity, inclusion, and equity as a policy structure that made it possible for that to happen, for people to say, you know what, I'm looking at my board, I don't see any women, I don't see any women of color, I don't see any people of color, we need to do something. And then, of course, I was in the position for people to say, oh, yeah, I think I met that person, or let me talk to Marion Tasco about who she might recommend or representative now Congressman Dwight Evans, who might he ultimately recommend? Or having had an opportunity to work at Mercy Health System, where now Dan Hilferty, who is the head of IBC, happened to have been my boss uh, while I was there. Again, you know, terrific civic and business leader. When someone says, okay, who could we talk to? Go talk to Charmaine. She's absolutely the person to go talk to. So having, again, those opportunities for me came through the fact that I ended up being in positions where I was in a broader community and working in that community and then ultimately uh, getting a chance to be on boards. Sure. So boards are, you would recommend boards, uh, board participation, membership as a way to strengthen your, not, not only your social network, that's one part of it, but also to get your arms around work in a different way and to commune with people who might be different from you. I would imagine, uh, and maybe you can expound on this, uh, that within those boards, there is this uh, opportunity to also be seen, right? To be seen in a different light. Now, I have had the privilege of observing you in board meetings and in several board meetings, uh, and you're masterful at it. Uh, and I think to know you is to know that you have a tendency to walk into your room, to a room and own your space uh, and have this, this degree of authenticity that I think some people, especially earlier in our careers, may be more hesitant, right? Our voice might shake a little bit, our knees might shake a little bit, and so it becomes a little bit difficult. You are at a point of mastery in that skill level. You're obviously seen. You have a way of being seen and, and, and of having your voice heard. Can you talk about invisibility? Because uh, one of the things we hear a lot is that for women of color, women to begin with, certainly women of color, uh, sometimes we're simply not heard and, and we almost feel invisible in certain spaces. Have you experienced that? In- oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I look I look like so good now at board meetings. When you If you've seen me in the beginning, I everything you just described mm-hmm. is exactly what it felt like. Number one, I didn't have a clue. Like, you know, I would get recommended and, you know, I might show up and, you know, there I am sitting with like, you know, Charlie Peasy or Bill Sasso or, you know, other like key leaders. And I'm like, okay, um, hmm, I wonder what my real role is. What What's the expectation? What am I supposed to do? And, you know, and so I initially was absolutely invisible. Um But I took it as an opportunity to learn. I was extremely observant. Why are these people here? What do they bring to the table? Who listens to them and why? What are some of the critical issues that this organization is facing? What perspective do they bring? Then I can start asking myself those same questions. What do I bring? What do I bring that's different? What What do I know that maybe they don't know? 
How can I better understand what are some of the critical questions and talk to other people about how they might solve some of those? So because I'm at my core, like a glass half full kind of person, as opposed to a glass half empty kind of person, I, I always sort of look for where's the opportunity? What am I missing here? What am I? But but that sense of feeling inadequate lives next door to that. So I don't want to come off like, oh, Charmaine is happy, optimistic, and she fabulous. No, I live next to. Okay, are people going to think I'm smart enough? Are people going to think I'm adequate? Or you know, am I all of a sudden you know they talk about the mask that women wear? Am I also going to be found out that I'm really not that good? I'm not really that smart. Um, yes, I live next to that, but I couldn't let let ever let that dominate because oh, I don't know. Maybe I'm just competitive. I had to win, <laughs> um, and so <laughs> my grandson always says, "I win, I win." I say the same thing: "I win, I win." Um, so I said, "Okay, what do I need to do um, to be more effective?" And I, you know, first couple things I might have said, no one paid any attention to me whatsoever. By the fifth or sixth time, people started paying attention, and by the tenth time. People asked me, Charmaine, what do you think? That's a great journey. That's a great journey. Um, do any of those inadequacies that you experienced or much earlier, do any of them remain with you? Or, or are those voices with you from blue moon to blue moon? Do they creep up and, and still speak to you? Yeah, I mean, every once in a while, you know, I'll get into like a new space. Like I'm right now celebrating uh, UAC's 50th anniversary over the next 18 months. And I'm like oh my God, I've got a lot to do. I've got a lot more money to raise. I've got to connect with other people. Am I using my time well? Are there, you know, different ways for me to, you know, organize this? You know, so I'm always asking myself those questions and those little doubts, you know, always like trickle in. So there's no such thing as like being completely um, self-assured, in my opinion. I, I think, but to me, Again, those questions are forcing me to think. They're, they're saying, okay, okay, what else could I be doing? So I had like a great meeting this morning with someone who said, well, Charmaine, what if we bring someone from London to your breakfast? I mean, it was just, I mean, it was the right person to talk to at the right time to sort of expand how I was sort of thinking about what I needed to do. So I view those little voices Again, not as things that are going to sort of hinder me or are going to keep me from moving, but are going to be ways of saying, you know, am I dealing with what's most important? Sure. So instead of running from those voices, you yeah, pay attention. And right. I, out what I pay asking. attention to because they're usually trying to tell me something, and mm-hmm. they're usually pretty good, and uh, they usually help me win. That's that's good advice. Sage advice. Uh, Code switching, switching up a little bit, code switching. So many of us rely on that uh, as a way to navigate. Um, Can you speak to your experience with code switching and whether that is a tool you've ever used or still use? Right. I mean, I, I don't I don't know if I necessarily use it as code switching, but I do take it as great communication strength. And that is that in the end, what you want to be able to do is to be able to talk to anyone who is in your sphere. So if you aren't ultimately connecting with them and communicating with them effectively, then it's really hard to be heard. And so I just consider it, you know, I used to tell people, you know, when I was growing up, um, 
my mother used to say, okay, there are three ways for you to dress. There is um, school dress, there's church dress, and then there's play dress. Mm. So I just view being able to communicate. There are certain ways that people hear you, and you should be able to communicate in a way that people understand what it is you're trying to say. So maybe less about the code switching and more about having the flexibility to adapt to right, your exactly. audience and your the, environment. And, and, in the end, you want to be heard. I mean, you're always going to be trying to make sure you have an authentic voice mm-hmm. that you really want to sort of say what you think is the most important. Um, but it doesn't matter, in my opinion, if, if no one... If no one actually hears you. Sure. Makes sense. So before we go into our rapid fire uh, and and conclude our time with you, uh, talk to us about your relationship with mentorship and sponsorship. We know that those are tools that many of us uh, in business across the board tend to use. Women especially have found those two tools uh, most helpful. What is your relationship with those two? I am a big, big, big supporter of mentoring and a big, big supporter of sponsorship. And I don't think I really knew about sponsorship until more, more, more recently. I had heard a lot about mentoring and I, I had a couple of experiences where number one, I had like really great mentors. I want to say that when people sort of say, Charmaine, why are you able to do what you do? It's because people paid attention to me. They helped me. They spent time with me. Um, they let me work on projects. They let me make mistakes. Um, they celebrated when I was successful and they helped me when I wasn't. So all of those things were very important. I ran into a couple of people that I really wanted to help me who didn't. And so I just always use that energy to make sure that I always give back and I always try to mentor others. So whenever anyone says, you know, can I come talk to you? Would you help me? Um, no matter what I'm doing, that's at the top of my list. My answer is yes. Um, I want there to be thousands and thousands of people out there that maybe I've touched in some way. Um, who are going to change the world. I don't think one person can ever do it. Um, and if you have other people who really, you know, um, at least hear you and maybe learn a little something from you, then that means that there are tons more people out there who are going to do great things and change things. I'll speak for many of us in Philadelphia who can attest to the fact that when we call, you answer and always say yes. So with that, let's switch over to rapid fire. Just a few questions that I'm hoping you can answer with either one word, one sentence, really abbreviated uh, and really quickly. Your favorite book, Charmaine, is? My favorite book is, and this is like really hard because I honestly, I'm the kind of person who like, you know, reads things in certain spaces and time. So it's not something that I like go back um, all the time. So I will say I love Nelson Mandela's Long Walk to Freedom. Um, I thought that was fantastic. Um, I loved Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point. Um, I loved Achebe, which, you know, everyone's talking about his book this year, Things Fall Apart. So, I mean, I, I there's not like one book. I'm, I'm like an <laughs> avid reader, but sometimes I may be like all into like just news. I'm just, I try to read every newspaper. I'm trying to read everything there. Or... Um, I just find a book that I that I really really love. So I love that your your rapid fire is more like an expanded one, but that's okay. Those are all great nuggets. Uh, tell us about self care and self compassion. You exercise them by doing what? Um, I exercise self care just by taking time off. 
relaxing and doing small things. Like I do like big things all the time. I, I really, honestly, it's really hard. I love like when I get a chance to go home and just like cook, but I love cooking from the perspective of, okay, what's in the refrigerator. I don't want to like go to a store to buy anything. I want to look in, I want to be creative and try to figure out what's here and what kind of recipe or what kind of dish can I come up with just what's here, especially with, with leftovers. <laughs> it's one of my favorites. Awesome. The one thing every black woman should know when navigating business is. The one thing that every black woman should know in navigating business is that don't be afraid of what people tell you about what's going on. Be open. Just look at what's going on. Everybody is pretty much equal. It's only when people tell you that you're not that it starts messing with your head. But you're just as good as anybody else in that room. You know, you're going to win some, you're going to lose some, you're going to hold some, you're going to drop some. That's just the way it goes. <laughs> Sounds like a song in the making. <laughs> and speaking of songs, a song, poem, or quote that moves you is... Oh, my goodness. See, again, I, I don't have one thing. I, I'm sorry, everybody. <laughs> I, I can't help you here. But right now, um, every Friday, I'm into WXPN's Funky Friday. I, I remember I never knew it was like a genre. I love James Brown. I didn't you know, I knew he was the king of funk, but I didn't realize that all these other songs were really a part of funkdom. And so I, you might see me in the car, like driving by and I'm like, sort of like getting down in my seat. So I love that. So right now I'm with the Barquets mm -hmm. and Holy Ghost. One of my favorite, if you have not heard the Barquets sing Holy Ghost, I will tell you, um, definitely check it out. Then the other is, I love sort of like soothing songs, right? So a, a really great melodic male voice, I must admit, really um, is exciting to me. So anything by Luther Vandross. So A House Is Not A Home um, is classic. something a classic um, that's always, mm, oh, I can't sing. <laughs> uh, and then, but I also have to throw out a new um, jazz singer for some who may not know is Gregory Porter. If you have not been to see Gregory Porter, I would urge you to check him out. And he has a song that just reminds me of why I do what I do. And it's called Take Me to the Alley. Take me to the alley. Take me to the afflicted ones. Take me to the lonely ones who somehow lost their way. Then you'll hear me say, I am your friend. Charmaine Matlock-Turner. On things we don't discuss, thank you so much for sharing, for willing to talk to us uh, and about the things that often we whisper, uh, knowing that we need to give them more volume, more time, more space, and the benefit of leaders like you. Thank you. Thank you, and thank you for everything you do.